0: Praise the Lord, everybody. Good Sunday morning. Everybody doing great this morning on a nice chilly day and have snow in the forecast. Uh, Have a nice few days of good weather here coming up. If you're a snow lover and a cold lover, anyway. But let's dive right into the lesson this morning. Uh, What we're going to talk about today is a very familiar passage of Scripture, especially if you've been in church in a while and you're a Bible reader. But we're going to start reading in Jonah, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11. Verse number 1 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarsus, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Pastor, will you pray? No, I've got two more, sorry. (laughs) Then said the Lord, thou hast had pity on the gourd for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, and came up in a night, and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much scat much cattle. Pastor, we pray. I'd like to thank you for standing for the reading of the word, and you can be seated. So today's lesson, we're going to talk about Jonah, and it's a very familiar story in the Bible, and we probably all have heard it many times. If you've been in church a while, I know you've read the story. Um, I know we've had it taught in many Sunday school lessons to us, and we've heard multiple messages by different preachers concerning it, and on and on and on. So there's nothing new to this particular set of scriptures that you most likely haven't already heard. And I don't want to bore you by reciting uh, just a similar story. So today, what I'd like to do is just lay a background for the first few minutes uh, that I have here. Uh, Then we're going to try to delve into that and in the time left. And understand what the thinking of Jonah was and possible reasons for his actions. And then at the end, I want to do a little bit different twist. And it's kind of going to be a departure from what the lesson actually said. So as a background, the book of Jonah is only four chapters long. And it's divided into 48 verses. Only 48 verses. There's chapters in the Bible that are longer than the, and there's chapters like in Psalms that are longer than the entire book of Jonah. So chapter 1 is actually the call of Jonah and Jonah's rebellion from that call. And chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer and his repentance. Chapter 3 is Jonah's preaching in Nineveh And Nineveh's repentance and God's grace. And in chapter 4 is Jonah's anger at God for sparing Nineveh. And then God's final lesson to Jonah. But Jonah was commissioned in chapter 1 to go to Nineveh and to tell them of God's impending judgment upon them. It's kind of like today uh, with preachers today they're commissioned to preach the word unto a lost and dying world and we have a lost and dying world out there that is as evil and as wicked as Nineveh ever was and the preachers of the truth today they're commissioned with Pointing them to Christ, pointing out the errors of their ways, and trying to lead them into a better path. So, Jonah chapter 1, verse 2 says this Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. At the time, it was probably one of the most powerful economically and militarily in the world Nineveh was an extremely large city at the time by the standards that we had at that day with thousands of people that resided there and it covered an area of approximately 48 square miles that's a lot of that's a lot of area the current day city is located in Mosul, in Iraq. That's where Nineveh was, the city of Mosul. And it was very culturally important at the time. It was a very wealthy city and had a lot of engineering marvels. It had an aqueduct system to carry the water around. And it had the, also the, was famous for the Hanging Gardens of Babylon one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Now militarily, the Assyrians were greatly feared and they were hated by their enemies. And of their enemies was the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. They were extremely vicious and barbaric in their conquest. Uh, They tortured and killed with impunity uh, they didn't feel any empathy for their victims. And if you read some about what they would do to uh, the people that they had conquered, it's, uh, it, by our standards today, we wouldn't think that another human could do that to another human. Today we would describe them probably as sociopathic, sadistic killers. And the city that they lived in, Nineveh, they worshiped many gods, but not the true God. Now it's been rumored, and I don't know if it's true, but I have read it in, in some texts, that the preachers who dared to come into the city and to teach were killed and hung on posts as you enter the city to dissuade future attempts from other preachers to come in. And proselytize the city. So in all of the wickedness and the evil which came up before God. God was still willing to offer a space of repentance for this city. And all the thousands of lost souls that were there. And when we say that the evil came up before God. God actually said their evil has come up before me. So where have we read that type of text concerning that particular phrase? You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what God said. Their evil has came up before me. So he was using that same language when he was talking about Nineveh. So justifiably, I think, Jonah probably didn't want to go to Nineveh. God said, you're going to go to Nineveh. You need to go to Nineveh. I need you to preach to these people. But Jonah probably didn't want to go. We know he didn't want to go. He knew the situation, and he knew the reputation of that city and the people. He may have even witnessed some of the atrocities that the Assyrians had done to their enemies. And so he was most likely afraid of the consequences of when he went to that city and delivered the message that God wanted him to deliver. Now my question, though, is how would any of us have reacted if we were told that we had to go to Nineveh in the same way? I guess we would have just hopped right to it. Joyfully went. Most likely we would have been apprehensive too, wouldn't we? We would have had the same fears that Jonah had. But we know the story as the story goes along. Jonah goes down to his local boat dock in Joppa and says, Hey, I need a ticket. I'd like to go to Tarshish so he gets a ticket finds a boat and in old west vernacular he would probably say I'm getting out of Dodge but the Bible says this and I think it's a very telling part of this scripture the Bible says he was fleeing the presence of the Lord He was fleeing the presence of the Lord. Jonah 1 and 3 says this, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, I don't know why he would think that the presence of the Lord wasn't in Tarshish. But that's where he was going. He was getting away from the presence of the Lord. And I think that's such a sad statement for a child of God to make he wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord he didn't want to accept his calling so he was going to just give up and leave I think that's amazing I'm sure that there's a good preacher somewhere could preach a good message from just that one verse of scripture fleeing the presence of the Lord But many Christians, today, we're faced with that same thing. We felt led of the Lord to do something. But we resist the call. We become like Jonah then, don't we? And we take the first boat to Tarsus to get away from God's presence to get away from doing something that's uncomfortable to us to do at that time. The very one that we should be running toward is the one that we're running away from. As Christians, we should be running toward him and his presence in order to lead others to him. But Jonah didn't fully understand the consequences of his actions. He didn't understand that he could not ever get away from the presence of the Lord. And we have to understand that God's will was always going to be done. In other words, Jonah was going to get the message to deliver the message. So Jonah, we know the story, Jonah went on and boarded the boat and he went below deck and promptly, what did he do? He went to sleep. I guess you could say he went to sleep on God. But as the story goes on, the wind and the storm arose and the ship's crew feared for their lives. And we're talking about professional sailors here, not somebody has a pleasure boat just goes out on the lake and says, oh man, I'm afraid because there's lightning out there. But the experienced sailors, they know the dangers of the sea. They know when it's a bad storm. So the boat was rocking and pitching back and forth. Yet the Bible says that Jonah slept on. Now Anybody ever tried to sleep in a boat that's rocking and pitching and banging back and forth? I think it'd be very hard. Most of the time we would get seasick, wouldn't we? Motion sickness would be puking our guts out. But what other story in the Bible does that remind you of? Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. They entered the boat, was crossing over. What happened? The storm arose, and Peter and the disciples were experienced sailors also, and they were afraid. What was Jesus doing? He was asleep, just sleeping like a baby. And they were fighting the waves and rowing and probably using things to bail the water out of the boat. And finally they woke Jesus up and they said, Don't you care that we're going to die? You don't care anything for us, do you? But the difference there was the disciples they had the storm maker and the storm breaker in the boat with them. They were in his presence. They weren't fleeing his presence they were in his presence. But Jonah had ran from the presence of the Lord. Finally Jonah he was Thrown overboard, as we all know. In Sea Talk, he had to walk the plank. Or he had to go down into Davy Jones's locker. But God had plans for Jonah. And he had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now the New Testament says that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale. The Old Testament says it's a great fish. Either way, whether it's a great fish prepared specially for Jonah or if it was a whale, it doesn't make any difference. He was in the belly of a fish for three days. So God has a way of getting his point across to us, doesn't he? Even when we don't want to accept it, God has a way of getting his point across so Jonah was finally learning the consequences of his rebellion against the instructions that God had given him. And he had feared going to Nineveh. But now he was experiencing a much worse fate than the Assyrians would have done to him. Now an interesting fact I thought about this whole thing was And, Pastor, you'll have to forgive me that for the first time in history, throwing a preacher overboard brought a revival. (laughs) Jonah 1 15 through 16 says this And they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. 16 says this, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice unto the Lord, and they made vows. So everybody on the boat had a revival after they threw the preacher out. Now, trust me, I'm not advocating that. But one thing I'll guarantee to everybody sitting here today anybody listening to the broadcast, that if any of us were ever in the belly of a whale, all of us would have repentance on our mind. All of us. We certainly wouldn't have been any different than Jonah was. So Jonah certainly did have repentance on his mind, and chapter 2 offers a great prayer of that repentance. Chapter 2 and verse 2 says this And said, I cried by reason of my mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy ways passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters cast me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about, and the weeds were wrapped around my head, or about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought me up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So what Jonah was doing here, he was repenting of his actions to rebel against what God wanted him to do. God had finally got his attention. So when, our action, when the consequence of our actions put us in bad places spiritually, guess what? We're not any different than Jonah. It drives us to our knees in repentance. And it drives us to a renewing, to a deeper relationship and understanding of what his will is in our life. Now we read this short passage of scripture of Jonah's repentance. And that was maybe two minutes it took me to read that, something like that. But understand that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. Two minutes to read that repentance. But he was in the belly of the whale for 72 hours. 72 hours. I really can't imagine what that would be like and we can think about we would know what that is but we really can't. We don't know. We know what he said. He said, I'm sitting here, and I've got seaweed wrapped around my head. He made that statement. He also makes a statement that he was in the belly of hell. So we have to surmise from that that it was a very unpleasant experience, very uncomfortable, and he probably was worried that he was going to die at any time. Same way we would be. If you got swallowed by a fish, you would think, it's all over. I hope somebody tells my wife I love her. (laughs) You know, that's probably thoughts that would go through your head. You know, those are the types of things. Boy, I'll never see my kids again. But for 72 hours, he was going through this. And I just wonder how many other prayers that he offered up while he was in the belly of this fish for 72 hours. You have to understand, it was pitch black, dark. It's like walking in the coal mine without a light on. He couldn't flick the bick and look around. He couldn't start a fire, even if he had a fire stick. It wouldn't work. But we would offer up probably many, 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 many prayers. Our prayers would be without ceasing most likely. And I would imagine Jonah's probably the same way. And I would say it's safe to say we didn't hear the whole conversation that Jonah had with God when he was in the belly of the fish. So when the fish vomited Jonah up on dry land, Jonah was a changed man. And I dare say it would change each and every one of us. When something miraculous happens in your life, you will always be changed. You will never be the same. There's no going back to the way you was before. And I don't think Jonah ever went back to the way he was before either because he knew how miraculous that was to be swallowed by a fish for three days. He probably didn't even know at the time how long he had been in the fish because he would lose track of time. He he couldn't look at the Timex and say, hey. But God showed grace and mercy to Jonah, and Jonah knew it, and he was more than happy at that point in time to head to Nineveh. In chapter 3, Jonah enters Nineveh and begins delivering God's message to the Ninevites. Chapter 3, verse 4 says this, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I've heard it said before, man, I tell you, that was miraculous because Jonah made a three days journey in one day. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Nineveh was so large, it was a three-day journey from one end to the other. So Jonah began preaching when he got closer to the middle of the city. He was one-day journey inside Nineveh when he started preaching. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. So, when you look at this by any metric, you would say, boy, this preacher was highly effective. That a whole city would go into repentance. Now think about what he was preaching though. He wasn't preaching a, oh God is love. All you got to do is believe. He wasn't preaching that. What was he preaching? You're going to die. God's going to kill all of you. And gave them the time frame. Forty days from today, you're all going to be pushing up daisies. And I'm glad about it. That's the way he felt. Now, if somebody comes in and preaches to you like that today, how do you feel? I ain't going back there no more. That's too hard for me. There ain't no sense in somebody saying stuff like that. That's not how you reach anybody. But that's what Jonah did. But even to the king, the king repented and sat in that sackcloth and ashes. And this isn't all that was said. He actually said, perhaps God will turn away from his anger. He didn't know if what they were doing was going to be successful. The king didn't. The people didn't. But they were going to try. We know the story. Amazing thing happened at the preaching of the word. An amazing thing happened. Nineveh, that great and evil city, so evil that it killed the preachers that came there. From the king to all the animals, there was remorse and there was repentance. A citywide revival broke out from one man obeying the voice of the Lord. One man. Now we think, I'm just me, I can't do anything. I'm just one person. I'm just little old me. Jonah didn't think he could do anything either. But God used him to bring revival to an entire city. The same way he can use people today. Jonah is not any different than we are. When this revival broke out, Jonah should have been overjoyed that it was so effective that he could see such results from this that God had reaped such a harvest out of this. But you know, that wasn't the case at all. In chapter 4, we find that Jonah, he got mad. Not just mad, the Bible says he was very angry very angry so guess what he did, he started a pity party so we get mad at something the preacher says, what do we do we have a pity party don't we so he went outside the city and just sat on a hill I quit I'm done with this I'm going to sit there, and I'm just going to watch the fireworks start. I'm going to sit here for 40 days, and I'm going to enjoy the results of this. He retired out to the hill outside of Nineveh, and he was just waiting for the expiration date. You know what that's like. Open up the milk in the refrigerator. Take the lid off, and you smell it. Got to get rid of that. Nineveh's expiration date was 40 days and judgment was going to be executed and Jonah wanted it to be executed. He wasn't preaching for repentance. Even though he had been granted grace and a space to repent. He wasn't preaching to save Nineveh but in his mind he was pronouncing judgment. And so often today, we get into that mode. We want to pronounce judgment on people instead of offering them a path to salvation. So he was was very displeased. And God sent him another message. While he was sitting out there just contemplating why this city wasn't being destroyed, The sun was hot and God allowed this gourd vine to grow and one day it grew up over and provided leaves over top of him and he got shade and he was thinking, man, this is pretty nice. I'm enjoying this. But the next day God destroyed the gourd. That hot sun was beating down on him. Not only that, God sent an east wind very hot east wind and it was so hot that he fainted anybody been hot enough to faint in here anybody had heat stroke that's kind of where Jonah was he just passed out and when he came to he was like I just wish I'd die I'm in such bad shape now think about a pity party I just be better off dead but in that God gives him his final lesson he said Jonah doest thou well to be angry he asked him a question do you do well to be angry he him that twice in that chapter. Once about Nineveh and once about the gourd. You know what Jonah said? Yes, I do well to be angry. I have a right to be angry. But God tells him, he said, Jonah, you didn't labor for that gourd. You didn't create it. You didn't water it. You didn't feed it. You didn't do anything. All you were doing was enjoying the benefits of it. It wasn't him, but God that created it. And we have to understand that God can create and destroy. God can give and God can take away. All in his will and according to his plan. Our blessing, though, is not in those things. Our blessing is in our obedience to his will. Now, what I would like to do the rest of the lesson, though, we're going to use some of that, but we're going to kind of depart from what this lesson plan was. And I, don't, I think it's very important for us that we not judge Jonah too harshly, but most of us do. We really do. We read Jonah and we think, Mm. We we not, not that we don't appreciate what he did, but we think okay he rebelled against God and he got swallowed by a fish and you know you know by his own actions he shouldn't have done that so he kind of deserved what he got. Most of us think that way, but we shouldn't judge Jonah too harshly. we fail to empathize or see ourselves with the similarities that we have to Jonah. We all have them, though. Sometimes we sit in judgment of others' actions without seeing their need for God because we know the kind of person that they've been. Perhaps who they may have harmed in their lives or what what they have done, we don't see them as a sinner That needs God's grace. We see them as a bad individual. All of us have probably been guilty about that. God doesn't just see what we see, though. He sees more than what we do. We may see a drug addict, and we've probably all got them in our families. We've probably all got people who have, and know people who have had an addiction issue. And that person most likely to the people who are closest to them and around them the most, that person has probably stolen. They've lied. They've cheated. They may have even killed other people. God sees that too. That's all we see with that person. Most of the time, that's all we see. But God knows that, the same as we do. But the other thing that God knows, and what he sees is a broken, broken person that's hurting and a soul that needs to be saved. what he sees is an opportunity for repentance and salvation. Now sometimes we get so close to a situation like that that we don't see that. We see all the hurt they have caused. All the pain that they have caused. Either ourselves or family members or friends and things of that nature. That's what we see. We see the results of their actions. What they have done. So we, we we don't feel the way God does about that. And I'll say this, it doesn't matter if they are murderers, thieves, liars, cheaters, frauds, whether they're violent, whether they're drunkards, whether they're fornicators, adulterers, covetous, prideful, homosexuals, transsexuals, and on and on and on and on and on. You could name all these things that we think are horrible, abhorrent, they're sinful. But guess what? We may know that, but God knows it too. God knows everything about them, more so than what we ever think we know. So sometimes the problem is we know that, and we can't empathize with that person, we can't sympathize with that person we can't get beyond the knowledge of what that person has done most of us though we can go visit church or we can have visitors come in here and we will rejoice and shout the house down when somebody gets up and gives a testimony about how they've come out from a life of sin and all the bad things that they may have done. And we think that's just great. Because we don't know their past. We don't know who they've hurt. We don't know what they have who what family that they've destroyed. We don't know the the results of them murdering somebody. We don't know those things. If we did, we may not have sought that person out or we may not have tried to present Jesus to them. Why is it that we feel that way after someone's converted and not before? Would we have the same fervency for that person before they were saved as we do after that? while they were yet in their sins, when they were committing these heinous crimes, harming themselves and their families and others. I want to tell us today is that we have no right to be self-righteous. God sees them with the same love as he does us. We may think, well, I never did that. No, you didn't. But I'll say this. There's no big or small sins. You, you may think that, oh, I'm I'm just, I've just been, a, you know, I've just told a few lies. It didn't harm anybody. It didn't kill anybody. God doesn't look at it that way. Any sin will cause a separation between you and God. Any sin causes a separation. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what sin it is. So God sees them with the same love as he does us. And guess what? He offers them the same salvation he offers to us. His blood was shed for them as well as it was for us. There's no difference. So Jonah, he was sent to a city of sin. Their evil had came up before God. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, they were that bad. But instead of seeing a harvest, instead of seeing something that could be good for God and be turned around what Jonah saw instead of that harvest was just a bunch of useless weeds he saw briars and brambles and he saw a barren and lifeless land something that should be destroyed and just burned to the ground that's what he saw And to get more into that, the pastor said that we need to do more in 24. So I'd like to continue with that in this lesson today. And just tell you a few things that, that we have going on here, you know, behind the scenes. Uh, in the men's group, we're becoming focused more on prayer, studying of the word, and reaching the lost. And we've started an initiative to do as many Bible studies as we can this year. We're going to have a training session in our next meeting uh, for giving Bible studies. Uh, and our goal is to reach as many as we can in the community, whether it's here or whether, wherever you may live at. Now, we realize, though, That's not easy. We realize that we're going to face rejection. And it's not easy being rejected, is it? Did you ever ask a girl on a date and she said no? Ever ask a boy or have a boy say no, I don't want to go out with you? Not pleasant. It it hurts your self-confidence, do not it? But we realize we may face rejection and that's fine. But we're going to the world in according to the Great Commission and preach the word, preach the gospel. And our goal is to be about our Father's business, to fulfill the Great Commission. But you know when we, how we feel the Great Commission? It's not in It's not in NAYC. It's not in uh, the UPC uh, General Conference. That's not fulfilling the Great Commission. Trust me, it's not. When you fulfill the Great Commission, you fulfill the Great Commission one person at a time. The backbone of the church, and always will be, Interpersonal relationships that you have with your friends, your family, and acquaintances, co-workers, and things of that nature. That's where we make a difference. None of us here is going to travel the world probably fulfilling the Great Commission. We're not going to be a Paul who goes into all these different places and traveling all through the known world at that time, setting up churches. And I'm not going to be the one doing that. And probably nobody here is. But, you know, the good thing about it, God doesn't require that. He only requires us to provide help to the ones that we have influence over. That includes praying for the lost Offering to help those that are less fortunate than us Making ourselves available uh, To the people that are sick Uh, The Bible talks about widows that we need to help uh, Orphans We have to give Bible studies We have to witness the good things God's done for us Providing hands to work at our local church There's no saying, many hands make light work. It's true. It's true if you're working on the job. It's true if you're doing work here at the church. There's so many opportunities for us to use the talents that God's given us. Now, Jesus spoke a parable about the talents. He gave talents to three individuals. Two of them doubled the talents that the master gave them. Or we could say the investment that the master put into them. One of them took his and hid it. So it didn't grow. It was the same when the master came back. He said, I knew you was a hard man. I didn't want to lose any of it. So I hid it and here it is. So we know that talent was taken from him and given to the others. But that wasn't all that happened to him. He was cast out. So the key point that I want to get across today is we have to see the harvest that's out there. The Bible says that the fields are ready for the harvest. They're white for the harvest. But it also says this, and it's a sad thing. The laborers are few. Laborers are few. Now, we may not like it because it takes work. It takes commitment. It takes effort. It takes sacrifice. And it's not easy. Those are things we don't want to agree to accept. We want something easy, don't we? The Bible likens church growth to a woman woman going through travail to have a child. It's hard. It's painful. But in the end, there's this beautiful child that is born that encompasses all the hope and all the promise of a new life. How much joy that gives that family. The harvest is out there, folks, and it's up to us to go into the field. Now, we discussed this at the men's meeting, and, and the, trust me, the pastor didn't say anything to me about this. But I just feel led about this we discussed this at the men's meeting the other night, that it's not the pastor's job to teach Bible studies. It's not the pastor's job to invite everybody to church. It's not the pastor's job to visit every sick person. It's not the pastor's job to visit every widow and orphan. Most of us, and sitting in this congregation today, we don't realize everything that our pastor and his wife does to keep this church running. Just what I know. We we often think the, the pastor just preaches and teaches. A lot of the congregation think that. But it's not just preaching and teaching several times a week. It's all the preparation necessary, the study that goes into doing that. It's praying for what God's will is for the congregation. You're taking notes and you're you're being prepared so that when you stand behind this desk, you can you know, study to show thyself approved, a workman. And so there's preparation so that the service of the Lord can go on. It's not, well, just open your mouth and God's going to feel it. That's a recipe for disaster if you're not prepared through prayer and study. There's a lot lot of work that goes on behind the scenes for a service that you and the congregation never understand and never know the pastor does a daily eye cast and that takes preparation and time and technical work to set up he does all this audiovisual stuff for the church and sets up the service and the broadcast he edits radio and TV broadcast to be sent out to these media outlets he has to come here and fix things he repairs stuff at the church him and his wife, they take care of the church finances. All the legal filings that has to be done. Tracks all the tithes that we all pay and gives us a report. We just got those reports in the last week or so. Somebody has to sit down and put that in and get that collated and then print those out and give to each of us. That don't just happen like that, folks. It takes a lot of time. I've been in business before. I've done book work. I know what it is. But then he has to make time. He has to visit the sick. Somebody calls and says, hey, I've got a sick relative. Could you talk to them? They're not saved. Could you get them saved for me? He counsels with people that have problems. We have problems here, don't we? Everybody has problems. Guess who we call? Who are you going to call? (laughs) he performs weddings we do funeral services people call and say hey my relative died could you do the funeral for him I don't know that he's ever turned anybody down there's a multitude of other things that's just giving you a small idea of what him and his family have to do to try to keep this church going. And I know he don't like to say all these things, and he may get mad at me for saying it, but it's a fact. And honestly, I make a conscious effort and attempt not to bother him because I know the burden that he has to be under. And it's so easy for someone which is a pastor and dealing with individuals and all their problems to get burned out. It is. If every time somebody calls you, it's about a problem. Nobody's calling and saying, hey, I'm just having a great day. Just wanted you to know. I'd say 95% of the time it's not that conversation. not so when you're dealing with problems all day long it it can it can be a drag on you I know from just being in the position I was in in the business world and I had to deal with all these problems I had to deal with people all the time I don't like this I don't like that and you know what are we going to do here and what are we going to do there and this is an issue and that's an issue it can wear on you and it does wear on you but it's even worse when you're dealing with someone's soul. It's a more weighty matter. So, I want to tell you that the pastor can't do it all and has never intended that he do so. We cannot become welfare Christians. Now, what I mean by that? That's just sitting on the pew waiting on the proverbial mailbox and go out and get that monthly envelope of blessings while someone else does the work to provide that. And we can get into a rut and we think that's the way that it is. But there's no free lunches in life. There ain't no free lunches in the church either, folks. I'll say this, the church needs to step up its game. It's time for us to rise up to the challenge. It's time for us to become prayer warriors. It's time for us to become biblical scholars. It's time for us to become soul winners. And not just church attenders. Satisfied with the status quo. If we truly want revival I firmly believe this. If we truly want revival we need to look in the mirror. That's where it's going to start. When churchgoers have a revival themselves then sinners will come and become part of that revival. If we're not ever Revive, don't expect someone to be interested in coming. If we're just going through the motions, we're not going to attract anybody. If we have no excitement for God and His work, don't expect to influence someone else. Now the primary takeaway from the story of Jonah was not of mass repentance not the saving of the city of Nineveh and I don't really think that's what the story in the Bible was about God can save any city anytime he wanted to but I think the deeper understanding we need to take away from that it was about God's attempt to reach one misguided preacher. One misguided preacher. Teaching that person about grace and mercy and his love toward the people out there. Regardless of how evil they are. The great lesson that we have today is that we need to recognize the harvest. We need to recognize the harvest that's out there. And we have to go into the fields. Amen. It's not good enough for us to come into this place in these four walls. It's not good, of, good enough of us to just to attend. But we've got to go outside these four walls and we've got to recognize the harvest. We have to provide the labor for that harvest. If you have a garden, you till the ground, you plant the seed, you may even water the plants and you watch them grow until they're ripe. But you never go in and pick the vegetables. You never go in and pick the vegetables. Guess what happens? Everything rots on the vine. And it doesn't do anybody any good. We can't get any nourishment from that. And that's the same way. God has prepared this harvest for us. The field's planted. It's watered. And it's been taken care of. The crop is ripe. So the question that we have is are we going to go into the field and harvest it or not? With that, I'm going to turn it over to Brother Dwayne. How many
1: enjoyed that lesson this morning? Sitting there thinking as Brother Keith was uh, teaching, talking about looking in the mirror. Who do you see? Do you see uh, Jonah? Back in the mirror, or do you see a reflection of Christ? Right. Amen. We are the body. Why are His hands reaching. Amen. I've, I've kind of put that in my prayer over the last year or two. Every morning, you know. What can I do to be more like Him? What can I do to reach? I want to reach with His hands, don't you? Amen. I want to speak with His voice, and I want to love with His heart. Amen a good lesson this morning. Let's give Brother Keith and the Lord another hand clap. I enjoyed that. I thought I knew I thought I knew the Bible lesson about Jonah, brother. Amen. But it goes much deeper, don't it? Any birthdays or anniversaries this morning? give them another hand clap. Amen. <laughs> Birthdays are a wonderful thing, ain't they? Amen. want to sow seed this morning. I think most of the sowing seed went into the birthday offering this morning. want to give. Teach a child what it's like to give to the Lord. Amen. Truly it is more blessed to give, ain't it? Y'all agree with that this morning? Amen. 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 It's more blessed to give because what we receive from him just by giving is better than Y'all believe that this morning? Amen. Amen. How I many's ready for service? I counted them out, didn't I? They still got more to give. Just like the lesson this morning. We still got more to give. You know, life, life's busy sometimes. But we still got more to give, don't we? Amen. It may take a while, brother, but we're going to get it. i give
2: them a hand clap. Amen. Amen. They're
1: learning, ain't they? Amen. I had this little lesson on my on my uh mind this week. The spaces where grace is. Brother, Brother Keith was talking about grace, you know. How many how many needful of grace? How many has need of grace? I do, don't uh-huh. you? But it seems like, you know, just like we was talking about, more blessed to give than to receive. We want to receive grace. But Brother Keith, we're slow about dealing it out. My uncle told me something, a wise, very wise man. Most of you all don't know him. He doesn't live in this area. He told me something years ago. He said, if you want mercy, you better be willing to give mercy. You've got to extend mercy and grace if you're going to receive it. Amen? And I always want to have mercy on those. I don't want to look like down my self-righteous nose at people in this area. People that I know that I can look and tell that don't go to church. Or maybe my brothers and sisters, Amen, and think, you know, well, I know they're doing this or they're doing that, but what are you doing? Look in that mirror, Brother Keith was talking about, Amen. How, how much are you, you know, living in your life compared to Christ? How much are you doing for the kingdom, Amen? The spaces where grace is, Amen. God has grace and mercy upon my life, so why should not I not extend it to my brother and my sister, my my friends at work, Amen? To the Amen. We got to be about our Father's business this morning. I challenge every one of you. It's still January. It's still, you know, we have a lot of New Year's revolutions, diets, and things, but none is as important. They all have importance as your duty for the kingdom. What are you doing for Him? Amen. We pray for us in the men's meeting. We're starting some new things, but we want to do more, Brother McKinney in 24. I want to do more. I can speak for me. How many is going to do more in 24? Amen. For the kingdom of God. Amen. You all come up here and worship with us. We can start by doing that. Let's come together and worship. I dare you to worship today more than you did yesterday, more than you did last week and just see what he's got in store for you. Amen. Hallelujah. You all sing and worship with us.
3: created from dust you came and you lived among us you took on our frame you walked in our pain and now you're taking us higher you stepped into time Took on a shame on the cross He was laid, and now, and now You're, taking, you're us taking us higher, we go. From glory
2: to glory. taking us. High. Now you're taking us Take it. taking us high
4: Glory to glory. There should never be a valley in between our glory to glory. So if you come this morning with a smile on your face, you got glory. When you go out of this place and things happen and you say, I still got a smile on my face, you're going from glory to glory to glory. Amen, amen. I'm glad he gives us that promise. If uh, we want to uh, raise our hand if you have a prayer request. Uh, This morning, the Lord sees all those hands in this house, and there are several on our list. We have some added that we had to add this morning, so we not only want to pray about your requests, but we also want to mention uh, these last few that's been put on the list. Let's remember Wendell Schwartz, Luke Williams, Debbie Francis, Marvin Bentley, Pam Lambert, Gracie Charles, and Joy Briggs. Let's remember all of these, and let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to move in a mighty way. Lord we come before your presence We thank you Lord for this opportunity That you have blessed us to come together You've given us health That we're able to be here Some today may be sick in body Some may need a touch Some may need direction I pray Lord that you would move in a mighty way That each and every one would receive What they have need of And Lord I pray that you would just touch Those in the hospital, nursing home My brother Lord that you would touch him And take away the lymphoma That he has And Lord I i pray that you would move in a mighty way for my sister and her husband and lord i pray that you would begin to just deal with the hearts and lives of all the backsliders and all those that have lost their direction in life and lord i pray that you would touch each and every one that raised their hand in this sanctuary as we give you the praise in jesus mighty name amen
2: Thank you It's
4: Today's offering and give us the Lord blesses you Uh, I know that sometimes giving, we don't see it as a blessing But I've learned one thing, if you will give to the Lord The Lord will take care of you in all areas of your life Doesn't matter, financially, spiritually, physically, doesn't matter I'm glad that I can say if I give, I'm going to receive Give and it will be given unto you, right? that what the Bible says? Give and it'll be given unto you. It's going to be heaped up, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Amen. So give to the Lord. Lord, we come before your presence. We ask, Lord, for your order in this service today. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless as we give, that you would get the honor and the glory. And, Lord, we're giving because we know that you love a cheerful giver. And we're giving because it is in your word that we are to give in tithes and offerings. Lord, we're not going to rob you. We're going to give to you. And, Lord, we thank you for all that you've done in our life. Bless each and every one that gives today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.
2: The God
1: of Cajun, whose love endures through generations.
2: I know that you.
1: How many believes that? How many's going to stand upon the word of God? He's faithful and true. River, come and feel
2: me again, come and feel me again, come and feel me
4: again, yes, hallelujah. hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah.
1: Church, y'all, y'all truly believe that song. Hallelujah. That is a great song. I think we sometimes, we sometimes sell these songs short. Amen. But many times, many times, I see what I look for in a song is the Word of God. Amen. Amen. Because I know, I know man can write many lyrics. Amen. Man can write many, many songs. Some of them are good. Many of them are evil. Amen. But there's one thing that I can rest assured, Brother Josh, if I can find the Word in my life. Amen. Whether it be through a song. We're behind this pulpit. Amen. Hallelujah. Right. If I can find the word, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Amen. Right. Then I can make it. Yes. Lead me to the word of God and I'll make it. Hallelujah. Because his word truly is unfallible. Y'all believe that? Amen. Come on. I'm no cheerleader. I'm no cheerleader. I'm no good at getting up here and cheering. Amen. Like Paul, I'm not good with words. Amen. But I found one word to be good. Hallelujah. His word in my life never leaves me. Never for, forsakes me. Never lets me down. You all know this old song. Amen. Come on, church. I feel like God's moving in this place. I feel like we're selling him short in what he wants to do. Amen. If I can just get my flesh out of the way. Amen. And let him move in my life. Amen. I Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And oh, what a foretaste of glory divine! Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm an heir of salvation. And purchased of God. I'm born of his spirit. I mean, he's glad for this. Oh, I've been washed in his blood. y'all sing this with me? Hallelujah. And this is my story. Oh, this is my
2: song.
1: Sing it. Hallelujah! Oh, this is my story. Yes, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Listen to this second verse. Perfect. Submission and perfect delight. Ah, Visions of rapture now burst at my sight. Thank you, Lord. Angels descending. Come on, he wants to move. sweet whispers of love come on church sing it unto him and this is my story just praising my Savior. Happy today. I'll sing that verse one or that chorus one last time. Yes, this is my story. Come on, sing it unto the Lord. Him all day long. That means in everything that you do, that you put your hand to, you bring praise instead of disgrace unto the Lord. That's my plea. Hallelujah. Praise
2: the
1: Lord.
4: Praise the Lord. This is my story. my story. Amen. Everybody has a story, right? Everybody has a story of what the Lord's done for you. And if the Lord's done something good for you, you need to praise him right now. Just go ahead and give the Lord a mighty praise. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for my story. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Some stories started a long time ago, and some have just started recently. But you know what? I'm glad that the story is started. Amen. I'm glad that the story is started. Amen. So we want to uh, uh, just uh, turn over the service. Brother Caleb's going to preach for us today, and we're going to turn it over to him. So let's give the Lord a mighty hand. Brother Caleb, a mighty hand as he comes. Let's give the Lord a little more hand
5: clap of praise. someone say he's struggling <laughs> or not. That's great. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. If you agree, say amen. 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 Right. Uh, no matter how much we struggle, as you see I am, uh, the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, and he deserves our praise, church. He does. Hallelujah. <laughs> you see, I think a, a, a good uh, rule of thumb should be thank you my friend a good rule of thumb should be if we all agree which we should that the lord is great and greatly to be praised every time we come into this house we should be the ones that are eager to give god praise Amen. out of fear go ahead hallelujah we should be the ones eager eager to give god praise out of fear that our neighbor will not because if we each do that, everyone will be praising. Amen. Makes sense, doesn't it? Hallelujah. Glory. Now to turn to the word of the Lord this morning. If you would, turn with me to First Peter chapter 5, and we will start at verse 5. I'm excited for what the Lord has done in this place. I'm excited for what the Lord is doing in this place. Not only today today, but uh, also what he is planning for the future for Cornerstone Apostolic Church in Jamboree, Kentucky. Amen? As you're still flipping there, Brother Keith, you did a phenomenal job this morning for what I was able to hear. I was in and out working with Sunday School, but what, you, what I did hear, did, did you and I correlate at all on our messages? At all? Did I talk to you? Did I call you up and say, hey, what are you talking? Okay, I wanted that to be clear before I started to preach. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, and it says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you to be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. Someone say humility. humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Verse 6 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that you may that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7, the last verse, says, Casting all of your care upon him, for he careth for you. Church, that's a good thing to know that the Lord careth for you. Let's go before him today that cares for us and ask that he would bless this message, bless this service. Lord, we come before you today and we ask, Lord, that we are humbled in your presence. We ask that you begin to move so mightily, God. People cannot deny that it's your hand, that it is your miraculous power beginning to intervene in their lives and in their situations. God, open our spiritual eyes and close the spirit or close the physical eyes of doubt. In Jesus' name, we pray. And the church said, "Amen." God bless you. You may be seated today for the sake of a title. The title is, "I'm preaching." Humility. I'm preaching humility. See, as we begin to dive into the scripture text for today, there's a lot to unpack. The very first sentence we read is a sobering statement that has started riots, and if you were to go out into this nation today, it would start more riots. The truth of the matter is, we are generations of individuals, young and old, unwilling to submit ourselves. This is why churches have to close their doors. This is why people are always fussing and complaining and trying to have people pick their side versus someone else's side. It's because it's all about them and what they want. It's all about their viewpoint. No one's willing to submit themselves in this day and age. How are we to be a servant of God if we do not serve his people and the people he desires to have? The people he desires to be his. Young people, submit yourselves unto the elders of the church. That's scripture. That's not Brother Caleb trying to to convince you to do something that you don't want to do. That's scripture. Submit yourselves to the elders of the church and learn from them. What they say and what they do whenever they come here and they weep fervent prayers and they worship in the presence of the Lord. Learn from that. Submit yourself to that, because that's how battles are fought. Hallelujah. But now, elders, I talk to you. Elders, be an example worth learning from. Be an elder worth submitting to. Church, be a church submitted to God and, and the man of God that he has placed over you. Submission is not always agreeance. I want that to sink in. Submission is not always Agreeance. That's where your humility has to outweigh your pride. Amen. Whenever you don't agree with what the pastor is saying, it doesn't matter if it lines up with the Word of God, you're going to have to submit yourself. You're going to have to shed a little bit of pride and put on some clothing of humility. Hallelujah. You see, the Word teaches us to be clothed with humility. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say, most of you, most likely, don't go to bed in the clothes you're going to wear the next day. Whether you're going to school, whether you're going to work, you're going to a doctor's appointment, I would assume you would not go to bed wearing the outfit that you plan to wear the next day. You see, so every morning you have to get up, and you have to pick up those clothes, and you have to prepare those clothes, and you have to put them on. So as the Word begins to teach us, clothe ourselves in humility. Every morning you get up, you have to put on some clothing of humility. And remember, we are creatures of pride that desire things of our fleshly nature, but we're going to have to put on some humility and shed some pride. See, I'm here today to tell us this is an important topic and not an easy topic to preach on. I pray that you know that because... uh, I knew that the Lord gave me this message, and I prayed that the Lord would take it from me so I didn't have to preach. Pride is not an easy subject to preach on, especially whenever I feel hypocritical preaching on it. But the Lord did not call perfect people to preach the Word of God. He called willing people, and I'm here today willing to do what He has asked. So I pray that you're willing to hear His Word and don't chastise this preaching. Hallelujah. We are creatures of pride, but called to be holy for Jesus is holy, which results in us having to be humble. The opposite of pride is humility, and the nature of human is to be prideful. Keep that in mind. We have to acknowledge this world does not revolve around us. I'm sorry I said it. Lord, don't, don't. Burn me at the stake. it's true. This world does not revolve around anybody sitting in this place, anybody on this platform. This world doesn't revolve around us. Hallelujah. And the problem is we don't realize that. We don't recognize that we should not be the center of our own lives. God should be the center of your life. Jesus at the center of it all. I love that song. Jesus at the center of my life. I was singing over my son the other night because he loves to sing. He loves to, he loves to hear music. Lord, forgive me for singing to him. You know that's awful. but He loves to hear worship music. I was trying to get him to go to sleep, and he was restless. And I began to sing that song, Jesus at the center of it all. And I began to cry because I began to sing, Je- Jesus at the center of his life. Jesus at the center. I want him to love me as a father. I want him to be proud of me. I want him to like me as his dad. But I want God to be the center of his life. I want him to be more concerned about what Jesus thinks of him than what his daddy thinks of him. Hallelujah. Unfortunately, we don't think that way. But we should. We should think that way no matter what relationship we're referring to in our lives. Whether we're referring to our children and them loving us and, and us being the center of their, their hearts and the center of their minds. No, Jesus should be the center of their hearts and their minds. But in relationships with your spouse, with the, the, the boy that you're dating young ladies and the, and the girls that you're dating young men, that should be an agreement on both parties that God's going to be the center of our relationship. You see, just a revelation for us. It should make a relationship easier whenever God is the center. Because otherwise, the two that are trying to love one another are fighting for who gets the most attention. And it becomes a problem. It creates division. But whenever you make God the center of it all, he brings you together. He brings you together. And what God has brought together, let no man make asunder. Hallelujah. See, God should be the center of our focus. But the truth is, he's not. We are so selfish. We have created a culture of, oh, don't worry about what other people think. I'm sure you've all heard that. I'm sure some of us have even said it. Don't worry about what other people think. You take care of you. You, don't, you. you do what makes you happy. That's a very dangerous church. When did the focus of the church change from what pleases God to what pleases the congregation? When did our focus of what does God desire from his church begin to shift to what can we do to make sure that this church is full? Of course we want the house of God to be full. That's what we're charged with. He said, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full. But he never said, let down your standards to do so. He never said, come on now. He never said, go out there and tell them, we'll do what you want to do as long as you come to our church. We want to be a church of love. We do. We want to be a church that is open to this, to this world and saying, hey, come in. Come as you are, but do not stay as you are. We got to get them here and God will change them. Hallelujah. When did it change from what does God desire from his people to what can we do to get the most attention? This world is so confused. They have confused lust for love. They have confused pride for integrity. You may be asking, well, how do I assure that I am not confused? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me me inform you. See, let me answer that for you. Look at your life and look at the life of Jesus. If your life as a Christian does not resemble the life of Christ, you are living a fruitless and prideful life. And God resisteth the proud. How many times have you tried to take things into your own hands and felt resistance? You see, you probably blame the devil. I know I have. And yet it was God resisting you because you're full of pride. How can God pour into something that is already full? Whenever you begin to imagine clay in a potter's hands, It is not valuable when it's just a lump of clay. We know that the potter has the skill to begin to shape and cultivate this clay into a vessel. Worthy of being looked at. Worthy of being used. But before the potter gets a hold of this clay, it's solid. Nothing can go inside of it. If you try to pour something on it, it's going to roll off. It's not going to be used as its intended purpose. So how can God pour into somebody that is so full of pride whenever he's trying to use them as a vessel of humility? Change who is at the center of your life. When you realize that you're full of pride and when you realize that you're solid and that your heart is rock hard, that's whenever you go to someone that can fix it. We're so eager to go to the doctor when we're sick. We're we're so eager to go and get assistance then. But our spiritual lives are withering away and we are suffering because of it. And yet we know where the doctor is. We know where the great physician is. And yet we never come and ask for assistance because we're so full of pride. If I step up to this altar, someone's going to know that I'm struggling. If I step up to this altar, someone's going to know that I've done something wrong. Who cares? They're going to know whenever you're not, you're not standing next to them, heading into the gates of heaven. I would rather you step up here now and us lay hands on you and you get broke from a, a, a lifelong addiction. Right. Then if, if I do know, if I do have a consciousness of who's there and who's not there in heaven, it's a great debate. I don't want to realize, hey, my brother and my sister, that I was charged with loving, that I was charged with giving kindness to, that I was charged with making sure that they were okay. They're not here. What more could I have done? I have to lay down my pride, lay down yours, and let's get saved together. Hallelujah. Change who is at the center of your life and cast your cares upon the one who cares. You see, as we turn back to the Word of God, we find ourselves now in Genesis 28 and 16. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. And I knew it not. We need to stop sleeping on God. And wake up and realize the presence of God is in this place. And that should create a response in his people. We understand that God is great and greatly to be praised. And he is worthy of of our acknowledgement. So whenever he shows up into the room, he deserves us to acknowledge him. He deserves us to get out of our comfort zone and begin to do some things that grants his attention. Amen. How often have we been in the midst of the presence of God and knew it not because we were distracted? That's a question that I want you to chew on for a while. How often have we been in the presence of God and knew it not because we were distracted? Because of what happened at work that day? Because of what happened in my relationship with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? Because what's happening at home? I'm not taking away the validity of your situations, but I'm trying to remind you of the power of the God that you serve. Hallelujah. See, a conversation my wife and I were having the other day, she texted me and she said, how can, you know, uh, obviously the devil's not omnipresent, how can he destroy so many people all at the same time, how can he fight so many people all at the same time, and I begin to to think on that, and I, I reach back out to her, and I let her know that, you know, he he obviously through Scripture we know is not omnipresent. The Word of God says that he roams the earth as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But he understands one thing: if I can keep them distracted long enough to make my rounds till I get back. to to try and put another seed of destruction in their life. If I can keep them distracted long enough, the Lord's not going to be able to get to them if they're distracted. So while he's doing his rounds and he's roaming the earth as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he has planted seeds of destruction in your life. He has planted seeds of pride in your life. The devil has tools that he uses. Your flesh can be the root of your destruction. Amen. It won't matter. You see, if the devil can plant a seed of pride in your life, it will not matter if he's throwing everything he has at you at once or if he is nowhere to be seen. Genesis, or actually I'm skipping ahead. If you nurture that seed by stroking your ego and feeding that pride, it will grow into a vein that is intended to choke you out, and you will smother spiritually. Admit whenever you need help. Admit whenever there's a problem in your life. That's the first step. If you've been a part of any AA, NA, any any training at all for someone that's struggled with addiction or struggled with, with problems in their life, that's the first step that they tell you, that they teach you. Admit that there's something wrong. Because whenever you acknowledge the problem, that's when you can start addressing it. Hallelujah. Genesis 28. 18 through 22, says, And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set them up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it and called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was called Luz at at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me this way, That I go and will give me bread to eat and uh, remnant to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that thou shalt give me I will surely give the tenth unto thee. When he realized, when Jacob awoke and realized he was in the presence of God, he started making some promises. It says that he woke up. He he took the pillows, uh, the stones that he had made pillows, and turned them into pillars. He anointed it, and he began to vow some vows. What that means, church, is that he began to make some promises unto God. He began to make some covenants with God. He began to make some agreements with God. You don't know what the Lord can do for you if you never find a place to ask him. See, when he realized he was in that place where him and God resided, he began to call out to God and say, These are my needs. These are my needs. I need your help. If you will do this for me, Lord then you will be my God. What once was comfort in his flesh. You, You probably ask yourself, how could Jacob begin to make those demands? It's because he rearranged his positioning. He positioned himself. He changed his comfort. How do we know this? Because whenever he awoke, he took what was a pillow for comfort, and he changed it into a pillar of sacrifice. And then, whenever the sacrifice was acknowledged by God, he—that's whenever he began to ask God to, 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 Lord, to do some things in his life. It takes like some sacrifice to get the attention of God. What once was comfort to his flesh became a reminder to his soul. God wants to wake up and stop creating pillows, or God wants us to wake up and stop creating pillows for comfort in the church. He wants us to wake up and stop creating pillows of comfort in the church. And instead create pillars so that the church of God will stand against the wiles of the devil. Be humble when people do you wrong, and seek not vengeance, for vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We need to be reminded. I preached about it just the other day. God is the God that is fighting our battles. We need to stop worrying about the storm that we're in, because we know that the God that is behind us is the God that is the maker of the storm, and he's the breaker of the storm. Just because you're going through the storm doesn't mean that God is forsaking you. If God is at peace with where you are in your storm, you should be too. Knowing, if you're living your life according to the word of God, that he has you secure in his hands. Why? Because the the word of the Lord says, no man can pluck you out of the hand of God. Right? But you can sure remove yourself out of the hand of God. You can. That pride will push you right out of the hand of God. But if you know you're safe and secure in his presence, who cares about the storm going on around you? Who cares if the crosshairs of hell are on you, if God's hands are around you? God has not forgotten the promises that he has made. His word says his promises are yea and amen. That means that it shall be done. If he said it, I believe it. That's why we sing that song. It's not just a filler in time. It is a reminder to the church. If he said it, I believe it. And I'm going to watch and pray in the same and give thanks because I know God's promises will come to fruition. Hallelujah. But just because you prayed and the answer didn't come knocking down your door before you got up from prayer doesn't mean God is not going to answer that prayer I've heard it before, and I'm sure you have too. We are a microwave generation. We desire things to be done immediately. If it's not done in 30 seconds, we're ready to move on to the next thing. Starving out. You see, we see in chapter 28, in a field, in Jacob's midnight hour, in that secret place, Jacob turned some pillows into pillars and made a vow. We say, oh, but he was, you know, the Lord had blessed him. The the Lord had uh, had his hands around him. Of course he did. But did you not just hear what I just said? He was in a field alone. He had to divide his house because he was afraid his brother was going to kill some of his, his, his family. He was living in fear. He was in a field by himself in a midnight hour. Come on now. How many people are in a field by yourself right now spiritually? Right. Although you're surrounded by people that love you, you feel like no one understands what you're going through. God sees you. He's wanting you to wake up and realize you're in the presence of God. Right. Begin to turn those pillows into pillars. Change your way of thinking. Let go of that pride and remember he's the one that should be the center of your life. Right. Amen. Amen. See, Jacob turned those pillows into pillars and made a vow. But it wasn't until years later, chapters later, that God reminded him of those pillars. No matter how long it takes, those pillars have to stand and be a reminder to you and to God and to every devil in hell. I have a promise from the Lord and I'm going to stay humble and I'm going to stay faithful until God provides the answer. Amen. Church, one thing that will tear down pillars that you, have, that you have built, pillars between you and the Lord, and build up strongholds in your life is pride. Pride has hindered people from getting the blessings that God has desired to pour out for generations. Pride has hindered people from being called, they're called, but answering the call. Amen. How many times have people come into the house of the Lord just like this, and the Lord provided a message that they needed, but because they were so full of pride, they didn't hear a word that preacher said. Amen. You're gonna try, and you're gonna try, and give an excuse to the Lord when we're standing before Him on the day of judgment. Say, but I didn't know. He said, but I sent someone to tell you. You didn't want to hear it. Because you were mad in the moment. Because you were worried about something that should have been mine to deal with. And you missed your blessing. Pride destroys. This world and this church and so many churches like it are filled with pride. Pride distracts from God's will. As I was stating earlier, if the devil can keep you distracted, it doesn't matter how much he works, you're doing the work for him. Your pride has become a tool of the enemy to see your destruction. If you can shed that pride, you have got out of the snare of the fowler. Amen. If God's will is for you to be healed, but your pride keeps you glued to your pew and you, uh, you will be destroyed. Your image is not worth you carrying around an affliction that God desires to heal. I pray that someone hears me today. Your pride, your image is not worth you carrying around an affliction that God desires to remove from your life. Amen. Brother Duane, can I borrow you for a moment, my friend? Want you to imagine that this is pride here? You grab both ends of that and stretch it out in front of you. I'll grab a, a good grip on it. See, this is the pride of his life, brother. You know, now if you come to this altar and you lift your hands, people are going to look at you. People are going to judge you. They might even think that you've done something wrong. So don't. You, this pride's telling them, don't you dare. Don't you lift your hands because someone's going to look at you. They're going to judge you. They're going to talk about you. All these things run through his mind. But now I'm going to add, if I can find it, I'm going to add the other part, the part that we don't always remember, the part that we don't pay attention to because we're distracted by this little voice in our head, this pride that we can't get rid of. Brother, don't you let go of that pride now. Because if you let go of that pride, people are going to make fun of you. People are going to judge you because you want to live a different life. Don't let go of that pride. But you like $20? Yes, you want $20? You. Let go of the pride. Let go of the pride. You have $20. I will step away. It's not good. On the altar, there's the blessing. $20. Pick it up. Go ahead. You want it? It's a good blessing. All you got to do is let go of it. What about another $20? Getting closer Seems like it's a little easier, but I want you to go ahead, let go of that pride. But if you let go of that pride and go to pick up that blessing, someone's going to judge you. All those generational curses that are trying to hold hold on to you—they're going to hit you even harder. Who cares? Because the blessing's right there. But we're not letting go of our pride. God's trying to pour out blessing after blessing, but we won't let go of our pride to pick it up. God's saying right here in an altar, or an altar that you create between you and him, doesn't matter where, if you will show up to the altar and pick up the blessing, you've got to let go of the pride. Another illustration that I felt for this, we're blinded by pride. In the church, we're not exempt from pride. No man from the front to the back, no woman from the front to the back is exempt from pride. And if we allow ourselves to be controlled by this pride, it not only hurts us, it hurts those that are around us. Because we're supposed to be here for one another. We are. We're supposed to make sure that our brother and our sister are okay. But if I'm about to fall and I feel weak and I can't call out for help, a brother in the church should be able to see that I'm struggling, should be able to know that I'm not okay and I'm about to step off and I'm about to fall into a life of sin, step out and fall out of church. But he should be here to catch me. But he can't because he can't see me. I'm crying out for help, but he can't hear me. All because he is so convinced. He's so covered up with that pride. Amen. All right. What if other people are praying with other people, and he's the only one that, that could see me, that could help me, that could pray for me? The Lord has put it on his heart, but his heart's so distracted because his eyes are focused on the pride. Don't be distracted by the pride that results in your brother or your sister falling out of church. You can go on. I appreciate that. Let's give Brother Dwayne a great hand. You see, pride is something no one, and I mean no one, is exempt from from the first-time visitor to the pastor on the platform, don't let your pride be your downfall. Don't let your pride be the destruction of a brother or sister. Don't let your pride be the destruction of the praise team. Don't let your pride be the destruction of someone, someone at all. See, there are situations that we're put in, where we have the opportunity opportunity to lay down our pride and show humility. Foot washing service is an opportunity to lay down your pride. I had never experienced a foot washing service before I moved here, and I'm so grateful, so eternally grateful that I was able to experience that. It takes a lot, it takes a lot of humility to to wash someone else's feet. It does. Me, because to everybody, uh, feet are gross, at least to me. You know, I don't want to deal with, with feet. I don't even like my own feet. So to, to, to wash someone else's feet, it takes humility. It takes laying down your pride. But to have someone else wash your feet, that takes just as much. It takes just as much humility. It takes just as much sacrifice of pride. Lay down your pride and let your brother pray for you. Let your sister pray for you. You say, how am I supposed to fight this battle alone? The Lord's trying to remind you you're surrounded by brothers and sisters. You're surrounded by people that, will, uh, that are willing to pray for you if you just let them. But it's going to take some sacrifice of pride to let your brother or sister pray for you. Sacrifice of image. We have to acknowledge that we are human. We have to acknowledge that we have faults. So acknowledge your faults and humble yourself. Turn from your wicked ways and move closer to God. When we make a mistake, that should drive us closer to God, not a wedge between us. Ultimately, to be a part of the body of Christ, we have to be humble. Plain and simple. Plain taught, it's easy understood. Learned that a long time ago. Amen. We have to be humble to be a part of the body of Christ because God resisteth the proud. His word teaches us that it's, that it's better for us to pluck out a body part that offends, that offends us because it's easier to get into heaven that way. We have to be willing to shed some things to get rid of some pride. If I keep stumbling over these things, I need to get them out of my life. If you can't do it on your own, there's a lot of things we can't. We need to cry out to God and say, God, I can't do this alone. Begin to purge my life of all the things that are unclean. That's why the, the power of the Holy Ghost is like a fire shut up in your bones. Because fire will burn away the, the infirmities. Fire will burn away the impurities if it's hot enough. Whenever a new convert gets into church and they feel the power of the Holy Ghost, nothing touches them. Nothing's the matter. Nothing's wrong. Why? Because the power of the Holy Ghost, that, that, fresh, that fresh anointing, that fresh fuel, they feel the power, and it's burning away those insecurities. But as they come to a church full of pride, as they come and they find their pew and they label it, and no one should touch their pew, no one should show up and sit there, how dare them. That fire begins to dwindle and things begin to change. Their focus is no longer on the Lord. Their focus is no longer on getting to the house of God as quick as I can. Their focus is now on them. Pride begins to destroy what God was trying to create. Don't let your pride destroy you. Repent. That's the problem. People don't know what repentance is anymore. They still still think that repentance is just saying, oh, I'm sorry. Words are cheap. And again, church, I'm preaching to myself. Words are cheap. Showing God. My father told me, don't tell me, show me. That's what God's trying to tell his church today. You can say, oh, I'm sorry. I need you to forgive me. Show me. Repentance is realizing that you're doing wrong and hitting a 180 and going the opposite direction. Hallelujah. So repent for your pride and let God replace it with a servant's heart. The word of God says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and in me renew a right spirit. Hallelujah. There are stipulations to God's blessings. There are. Not so he can show his strength and authority over us, but rather so, so we will appreciate his grace when it's obtained. Have you ever heard of the saying, a penny earned is a penny gained? I never had heard that up into high school and, and someone said it and I asked what it meant. And they said, you know, if you're walking down the, in a parking lot and you see a penny, you know, it's a penny. You're not going to pick it up. But hey, if you, if you worked for that penny... You're going to grab a hold of every penny that you have, every penny that you earn, and you're going to hold on to it. People can't take it from you. You're proud of that because you earned it. So if the Lord begins to bless us every time we have a problem, the Lord begins to allow us to be blessed and healed every time we have a sickness and an infirmity in our body, what have we learned? Oh, we must live how we want to, and then when we have a problem, we go running to to the Father. That the Lord allows us to go through some things. If the Lord allows us to go through the storm. If the Lord, knowing that he's there and he's present in the boat with them, yet they still, he, he wasn't the first thing, the first person that they ran to. Did you ever realize that? They knew that Jesus was in the bottom of the boat, but yet they were trying to do everything they knew to do in their earthly power to make sure that that boat didn't flip and sink. Their pride, their pride got in the way of the solution. Finally, whenever they were so desperate, God doesn't want you to get to the point of such desperation that you come running to him. He wants you to come to him first. Shed that pride and say, I can't do it on my own. Where is my God? There are stipulations of God's blessing. Not so he can show his strength and authority over us, but rather we will appreciate it when his grace is obtained. In the word, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God is a faithful God, and God honors what he says he shall do. He said, of course I love My child. We're reminded of the the prodigal son. The father didn't want to see his son take his inheritance and leave. But he said, I'm gonna have to, he's gonna have to learn the hard way. So finally, whenever he come coming back down that dusty road to his father's house, he ran and he met him. But there were some things that had to be done first. He had to learn that there are people that do not like him, they only like him for what they can get from him. He's got to learn that there are places that are worse off than where he is right now. He has to learn that there is provision in his father's house. When he learns these things, which are hard lessons to learn, he'll come back. Church, don't be that prodigal son. Don't be that prodigal daughter. Learn before you ever leave. Shed that pride and say, my father's house is where it's at. My father's house is where the provision is at. We find in 2 Chronicles 7 and 1, and I am coming to a close. Someone said amen. Amen. 2 Chronicles, and the praise team can come if they they would like. 2 Chronicles 7 and 1 says, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Started out that scripture said, Now, when Solomon had made the end of praying, whenever he had finished sacrificing some things, that's when God showed up, that's when God acknowledged the sacrifice, and that's whenever he poured out his presence. We're not willing to sacrifice things, we're not even willing to raise our hands or, or lift our voice. Whenever a preacher's preaching, it's not what the preacher should be up here for, but you should be acknowledging the words that the Lord has given him is truth. and by, by honoring him, you honor his words, you clap your hands, you lift your voice, you give him grace, you give him thanks for his grace on you. We know through the word of God, and the very fact God ro- robed himself in flesh and was slain on a cross, God honors and acknowledges flesh sacrifice. In the scripture, Second Chronicles 7 and 1, after the burnt offering and sacrifice was consumed, the glory of the Lord filled the house. When you as humans that is robed in flesh, that has a human nature, When you begin to sacrifice your flesh on a daily basis, God honors that sacrifice. Every day we wake up, what's the first thing we do? Oh, oh, I'm hungry. What am I going to eat? Every day we wake up and say, Oh, I got to get ready for work. I got to go. I got to do this. We got to wake up and remember to put God first because our nature is to put us first. So by shedding that nature, shedding that, that, that pride and putting on humility, we're putting God first. And that's how you draw closer to Him. Church, He desires a church that will draw close to Him. There's got to be some sacrifice of fleshly pride in this house. And in each individual house when you leave here, there's got to be some sacrifice of fleshly pride. If we want more in 24, there's got to be a sacrifice of pride in this house. And I'm talking from the front to the back. And if you said, oh, we ain't talking to me, you're exactly who I'm talking to. You're exactly who I'm talking to. If you're someone that says, or if you're someone that hears something needs to be done around the church, and you say, oh, that ain't my job, you're who I'm talking to. If you're someone that says, oh, I I did that last time and I didn't get recognized, so I'm not doing it, I'm talking to you. we got to lay down some pride, church. For this church to flourish, it's going to take all of us. For this church to grow, it's going to take all of us to lay down some pride. But church, please don't misunderstand this preacher. I am preaching to myself just as much as any of you. My flesh is being chastised as I preach the word. I am not exempt from pride. It is something I have had to submit every day, and I will continue to have to submit. I've gotten to the point Honestly, I have, I've gotten to the point where anytime something happens at work or anywhere else on the road, I, I, I occasionally get frustrated with drivers. On the road, anywhere else, I've had to say when someone does something that makes me upset, well, I've done that before. Well, it could have been easy that that was me doing that. I've had to remind myself, we're all human. We make mistakes, but we all need Jesus. Jesus. How am I supposed to be a witness to somebody whenever I'm sitting there being passive-aggressive to them? We have to shed that pride and clothe ourselves in humility. I'm not exempt from that pride. It is something I have to submit every day. And if I get comfortable and don't work on submitting my pride, it is like an old serpent that raises its ugly head, and it hurts people. Church pride hurts people. It hurts the people that love you. Shed that pride and stop hurting the people that love and care about you. And I am coming to a close. Don't get comfortable, church. A comfortable church is a cold and a dead church. That's why these preachers and the pastor do all but beg you to come to this altar and sacrifice some pride. We call on you. We ask that you would come up here and praise the Lord. We ask that you you come up here and and you give your life to the Lord. We do all but beg you, but we can't make you. We desire you to, to have the best life that God wants to offer to you, but we can't make you. That's why it's a sacrifice. So right now is your opportunity to lay down your pride and be clothed with humility. I wonder all around this house, I'm opening this altar where the blessings at, where God's trying to pour out the blessings. The opportunity is now. The opportunity is here. Are you gonna lay down your pride and pick up